Greetings, troublemakers. Welcome to trouble. My name is not important. These days, it has become nearly impossible to ignore the destructive impacts on our oceans, rivers, land, and atmosphere wrought by two centuries of industrial capitalism. The consequences have been devastating for all forms of life on Earth. Around the globe, forests are disappearing at a frantic rate, giving rise to the fastest rate of species extinction in the past 65 million years. Meanwhile, more than 10 kilometers below the surface of the Pacific Ocean, the rocky depths of the Mariana Trench have become a graveyard of discarded plastic and other forms of packaging for mass-produced commodities. Human societies have also been hit hard. Just this year alone, historic droughts have ravaged numerous East and Southern African states, putting tens of millions at risk of famine, even as torrential flooding has laid waste to parts of West Africa and the South Asian subcontinent, washing away entire villages. Record-setting wildfires have ravaged California and the Pacific Northwest, producing apocalyptic scenes of destruction that look like something out of a Hollywood disaster flick. And then, of course, there was this year's unprecedented hurricane season, which saw multiple Category 5 storms smash into the Caribbean and the Gulf Coast, and the first ever reported hurricane off the coast of the UK and Ireland. But while these natural disasters have produced terrible scenes of human suffering and death, they have also provided opportunities for some truly inspiring acts of solidarity and mutual aid. In areas where people have been abandoned by the state and NGO relief efforts, decentralized networks of volunteers have popped up to coordinate food and supply distribution, arrange for temporary housing, and help communities rebuild local infrastructure. Over the next 30 minutes, we'll highlight the voices of several individuals as they share their experiences working with decentralized mutual aid disaster relief networks, circumventing bureaucratic nonprofits like the Red Cross, and making a whole lot of trouble. I was working with Common Ground in New Orleans in the Lower Ninth. I got there two years after Katrina, and when I got there, I was really shocked to see cement blocks where the uh, houses had been washed off the foundations, and the government was fining people for not cutting their grass when their houses were totally washed away. I was out in Queens when Sandy came in, and we thought, surely this can't be that big of a deal, right? It's, a, it's not even a hurricane. What amazed me was how powerful the storm was and how it just flattened Staten Island. I mean, there was just nothing. To see the subway close down for the first time in over 100 years because this catastrophic storm had hit New York City was truly terrifying. And I thought, man, if this just starts happening everywhere, what is our world going to be like? Not good. Believe me, not good. The Caribbean has just been getting hammered. The strongest hurricane in history to make landfall. Prayers are needed for this area. Anytime it rains, People are re-traumatized, they're afraid. The flooding was severe, and they're having to adjust to the fact that their lives are very different now. Their lives are not ever gonna be the same again because of this storm in some very negative and long-lasting ways. The west side and the central area in Puerto Rico have been really heavily affected. There's like 400 miles out of 5,000 miles of traversable roads. There's bridges that have collapsed. The death toll that's being reported is like grossly underestimated. It came in through the southeast and it created a lot of damage in the area and a lot of damage in the mountains. And then it, it exited 
towards the northwest. So basically the whole island was hit. Communities, you know, vary in different degrees of the damage, but it's been immense. When you're unable to go about your day-to-day -day life, when people are unable to go to their jobs, when children are unable to go to school, when uh, folks are unable to get medical care, when people literally die of infections, that's catastrophe. There's a great deal of damage. Homes are in disrepair, there's trash in the streets, there are dogs roaming the streets that are hungry because the people that they were previously relying on to take care of them are no longer able to feed or care for them. There's a lot of displaced folks. People who were homeless prior to the storm are still living in shelter environments where they are re-victimized and re-traumatized on a regular basis by these large international disaster relief organizations who come into the city and oftentimes do more harm than good. My name is Deb I am one of the co-founders of BioAction Street Health, which is a street medic collective in Houston. Bash formed right before Hurricane Harvey and has been doing disaster relief and mutual aid work since the storm. It's a loose collective of people from around the city and around the country who come and help out for whatever predetermined amount of time that they want to come and be here. We advocate for people who have been locked out of the Red Cross shelter. We help with mucking and gutting of the homes that were flooded. We are doing mold remediation, clothing distribution, food distribution, supply distribution, along with street medic training, mental health training, peer-to-peer -peer counseling training, and regular old street medicing. In times of crisis, I think it's natural for people to look around and see how they can help. We saw a lot of it in Houston, and we saw it happen very quickly. We saw mutual aid groups come together in the blink of an eye. Communities that we're working in, the lower socioeconomic status, the homeless, the poor, the working poor, sometimes they need other people to come in and give them a hand. They know what needs to be done. They don't need to be infantilized or objectified or tokenized but they just need access to resources. And if you have access to resources, then it's your duty to provide those resources to those who don't have them. The water was not water. It was sewage and it was overflow from the Superfund sites, from the, the chemical cleanup sites, and it was toxic. Houston is one of the petrochemical centers of the Gulf Coast. So when the storm came, we had fuel spills, we had sites that were flooded that were already contaminated, so that water flowed through the city. What we already know happens in those areas are large concentrations of upper respiratory and lung diseases, cancer clusters, fetal death, premature birth, deformities, not only in the short term, but the effects of the petrochemical industry, that's a long-term problem. We may not see those effects for 5, 10, 15 years from now, but eventually we're gonna see them. We have looting in Houston in the wake of Hurricane Harvey. That's according to local police officials. There have been numerous reports of looting by storm survivors. Neighbors here, they're not messing around. I know of one grocery store in Houston after the storm that was broken into because people were hungry. They took eggs, they took milk, and they took bread. The media was out and a reporter called the cops and his reasoning was we had to keep order in place otherwise there would be total chaos. So of course the government wants to criminalize disaster victims because it does the same with poverty. It has to be part of the discourse and the narrative and it's also very racialized. There were all those images that came out of Katrina. Um, there's one in particular where it's a photo of a white person with a bag full of groceries dragging it through the floodwaters and they were portrayed as being beneficial to their family and the community. And then there's another photo of a black person, basically the same situation, looters 
you know, ravaging the city. It's a game. They're the same people doing the same thing for the same reason. Especially uh, Puerto Ricans being the second-class citizens, if you may, these people who are enjoy some rights but are colonized by the U.S. Then you also have to promote this idea of criminalization, this idea of incapacity to run a government. But we have the conditions that we have because U.S. imperialism and colonialism has created the situation. What should people do? Should they die? Should they allow their children to die? We should all be considering very deeply what it means when a society values things over human life. Because with the way our society is unraveling and how rapidly it's unraveling, one could easily find themselves swimming to the corner store in search of food. I watched Trouble, we gotta stop it. Despite what the oil industry lobbyists and diehard climate change skeptics may say, it's a widely accepted fact that greenhouse gas emissions are trapping more of the sun's energy within the Earth's atmosphere, causing a spike in global temperatures. 2016 was the hottest year ever recorded for the third year in a row, and 2017 is currently expected to come in a close second. But while people on dry land have been sweltering through historic heat waves, the effects on ocean temperatures have been even more dramatic. And just as climate scientists have long warned us would happen, warmer surface temperatures in the oceans are producing more frequent and powerful storms. This year's hurricane season was unprecedented, with three separate megastorms, Harvey, Irma and Maria, making landfall in the Caribbean and areas along the Gulf Coast. The islands of Dominica and Barbuda were completely flattened, and the UK and US Virgin Islands sustained heavy devastation. But nowhere was the scale of damage worse than in Borique, or as it's known by its gringo overlords, Puerto Rico. Puerto Rico was hit by two separate storms, Irma and Maria, causing massive flooding, knocking out the country's electrical and telecommunication grids, and leaving millions of people without access to clean drinking water. This natural disaster was made all the worse by the man-made disaster that is the Trump administration. All appropriate departments of our government, from homeland security to defense, are engaged fully in the disaster. And the island's status as a hyper-exploited U.S. colony. But while Trump has used the disaster as an excuse to work on his paper towel three-point game, and yet another opportunity for delusional self-glorification. When you talk about relief, when you talk about search, when you talk about all of the different levels, uh, and even when you talk about lives saved, I give ourselves a 10. People in Puerto Rico have responded to the situation with an incredible level of resiliency and outpouring of collective solidarity. Palante, mi gente. Puerto Rico has been undergoing a crisis for over 11 years, starting in 2006 dramatically, and obviously the hurricane just deepened that crisis. The state government and many municipalities have either collapsed because they don't have the capacity to operate emergency because of the lack of resources that we have on the ground, and also it's been kind of like a hands down, let FEMA come in and, and take care of us. But FEMA has been withholding aid and deploying people into assignments, but they're not going really into the communities. They've lied about the access to communities. So in the absence of a state and federal government, people have started to come together. The bureaucracy and red tape and protocols on the ground set by FEMA and Red Cross have been creating a lot of difficulties and, and barriers between the people and the, the resources that they need. I think a lot of the times before NGOs go in to do an action, they have to consider how it's going to fall upon the ears and the sensibilities of their keepers, of their funders. 
We don't have that responsibility. We think about the way the thing that we're seeking to do is going to impact the community, who's going to benefit from it, and if there is an actual need. If we can come to a consensus that that is true, then we go and we do the damn thing. Everywhere we go throughout the island, the stories is the same. People on the ground, neighbors coming together to clean their neighborhoods, to help feed other folks in the neighborhoods when the aid is not coming in, trying to pull together resources to have collective kitchens and collective meals. Um, and it's been an incredible amount of solidarity, both from outside Puerto Rico, but also especially within folks in the communities, because it's based out of need. So now you have to talk to your neighbor because you have to share the rice and the beans so you can cook something together and you happen to be the one with the gas stove. So this has resulted in, in, in some spaces that are called Centro de Apoyo Mutuo, centers of mutual support that vary from uh, social kitchens or collective kitchens where folks come to eat to places where people can come uh, to drop off stuff so it can get distributed to communities that have little to no communication. Even FEMA had mentioned the model of uh, like common ground relief collective that as that being like uh, that decentralized model being a way to get mass resources to people like quickly, you know, um, uh, immediately rather than waiting for government bodies to respond. So there's decentralized groups on the ground now that are destroying food and getting getting supplies out to people because FEMA's reporting that they have give out 200,000 meals a day in a place where there's millions of people. And that's like one meal a day for 200,000 people. So they're, they're sorely failing. So we're like daring to believe that we could render the state and these NGOs like as unnecessary by just being on the ground and responding to people directly. So in that way, decentralized methods are like, we're able to circulate more easily. We're able to get intel around the, the island better. We're able to, um, you know, more directly communicate with people rather than treating them like they're passive receivers of aid, like they're consumers and treating them like they're human beings and listening to them. It's been a challenge also the lack of communication, so we have to actually go to places. It's been a challenge also for us, the lack of transportation, the fact that because we are poor and working class, we really don't have adequate vehicles. So we've eventually gotten a rental and try to get to places and, and take stuff directly to folks that we haven't heard from yet, who are the ones in most need. But the challenges of transportation, communication, and also money, the fact that we can't access, even with donations, we can't access because it's so hard to get even money from the banks. Uh, the mail is pretty practically paralyzed or working at a very, very low level because of the damage of the hurricane and the systems are down. So even the mail is an issue and we're an island. So people with money fly in planes with aid, but working class folk can't do that. So it's really been about pulling resources. What do we already have? And finding solidarity with some, even some sympathizers at, you know, at all levels from business owners to truck drivers to folks that are ready to, to help us and us being able to have the connections because we've been with the folks that had to do the frontline work. And it's been a challenge, but it's been a necessary challenge because if not, nothing will get to a lot of our communities because the way they're not connected to the political structures on the island. People at first were waiting for the government to, you know, thinking the government would come and respond to their needs. But once they saw that it wasn't coming, they started joining together, organizing kitchen, uh, you know, getting community aid out and then connecting with other networks that were, you know, trying to get the word out of what people in their areas and rural municipalities were in need of. There's this like fear mongering that society is going to break out and we're going to have to have the government come in and police us. I mean, well, that's absurd because the government, when they come in, they're usually taking and not giving. And what I've seen here is people giving to each other. From the airport, every single place that I've been in, I've seen people pouring out the milk of human kindness to each other. 
So yes, the solidarity has been immense and it's the first steps of, of a popular power that's gonna build because of folks coming together in absence of a state and a military occupation by the U.S. Early in the morning of September 19, 1985, Mexico City was struck by a devastating earthquake. In the span of minutes, thousands of buildings collapsed into piles of rubble, including hospitals, factories, schools, and entire apartment blocks. An official death toll was never produced, but it's generally agreed that somewhere between 10 and 30,000 people lost their lives. The government of President Miguel de la Madrid responded to this national tragedy by ordering a news blackout and sending the military into the streets to impose a curfew. Outraged by the state's incompetence and authoritarianism, the Mexican people spearheaded the rescue efforts themselves, pulling survivors from down buildings and helping to organize emergency shelter for the hundreds of thousands of people rendered homeless by the quake. In September of this year, Mexico was hit by two more earthquakes. The first and more powerful of the two struck near the southern states of Chiapas and Oaxaca on September 7th, and the second hit near Mexico City on September 19th, exactly 32 years to the day after the 85 quake. This time around, the Mexican government has attempted to avoid the negative press that plagued its predecessor by cynically using the tragedy as a way of increasing its domestic image. But the majority of people in Mexico have long since stopped believing in the legitimacy of their government, and in recent years, their values of solidarity and mutual aid have grown stronger. More or less the official number is 40 collapsed buildings in all the city, uh, a thousand buildings that cannot be used as housing. Bueno, hay mucha gente que está en la calle, hay mucha gente que no sabe si puede o no volver a su casa porque no hay quien le diga, ¿no? Y evidentemente una siempre quiere volver, quiere entrar, ver si puede sacar sus cosas, pero eso pues pone las vidas en riesgo y pues las autoridades de por sí no son competentes. After the earthquake happened, the general response was to go to the most affected areas. There was no immediate response by the government. It was um, civil society, and uh, since the earthquake in '85, it has been always civil society, the one going to sites and start aid, especially removing all the debris from the area. Las brigadas autónomas aquí en, en La Mártires surgieron un poco como de la inquietud de, de todas y todos por preguntarnos, bueno, ¿qué vamos a hacer, no? En un primer momento eh, abrimos el centro de acopio aquí en, en el taller y como que nos apoyamos más en la parte de verificar la información, o sea, porque era una cantidad, así un bombardeo de mensajes este, verdaderos, falsos, unos que ya habían pasado, otros que no. Entonces se concentraban acá los recursos y eh, desde aquí salían eh, brigadas de ciclistas para entregarlas en, en los lugares en los que eran necesarias, ya fueran centros, digamos, albergue o este, zonas de, de derrumbe o de edificios dañados. Volvían, daban un informe de cómo estaba la situación, o nos marcaban desde ahí si necesita otra cosa, si eran cosas más pesadas. De pronto las podíamos mover en un coche o venían motociclistas que también estaban como 
apoyando a mover, por ejemplo, insulina, ¿no? Unos repartidores de tacos que me ayudaron a montar en, en la caja de, de la moto una hielera de insulina. After the civil society started working on the sites, the government also sent special forces, but that included the military, police groups, and some engineering teams. But the feeling was that they were not really trying to help and save lives, but just in general control the situation in all the sites. El jueves en la noche ya parecía como que eh, las necesidades de acopio estaban más o menos satisfechas, ¿no? Lo que empezamos a plantear era qué más podíamos hacer para ayudar, o qué seguía. Esta energía que se concentró acá en, en La Mártires fue las brigadas de documentación, que consisten en eh, entrevistar a las personas que fueron afectadas por el sismo. Hicimos un, un guión de preguntas para ir a, a preguntarles desde cómo estaban, cómo estaba su casa, este, qué necesitaban y también cómo había sido su interacción con las autoridades. Cuando decidimos como dejar de, de, de funcionar como centro de, de acopio, empezamos como a trabajar en, bueno, esto es, es una cosa a largo plazo, entonces tenemos como varios ejes de trabajo ahorita como brigada, cargándonos un poco más la mano en lo que hacemos, que es gráfica, ¿no? Y también buscar los modos de apoyar pues, con lo que realmente sabemos hacer, ¿no? Más allá del, del momento de emergencia, ¿no? Y de la inmediatez y la coyuntura. Entonces, pues, tenemos varias asambleas y ahí vamos como viendo cómo va avanzando la cosa, en qué podemos apoyar, en esto de hacer como un censo de, de gente damnificada, ¿no? Y que en campamentos donde se necesitan cosas, pues si, si todavía estamos en capacidad las llevamos. Was impossible for one single group to organize aid. For example, there was collaboration needed between the groups collecting or being able to buy equipment, tools to send to Oaxaca. People organized to how make lists, what was needed where and then there were other groups uh, in charge of finding what was the best way to transport all these things. So in general, it was that a very specific group got specialized in one part of the process, and then uh, it helped a lot the previous organization, you know, like knowing which autonomous groups were working in Oaxaca, so those were already important connections to make. Nunca nos estorbamos, nunca tuvimos que decir, a ver, no, tú haz esto, tú ponte acá. Como de nadie realmente te tiene que, que decir qué hacer, ¿no? Que eso también fue muy, muy chingón. En el wake of natural disasters, local systems of authority break down. The widespread damage to infrastructure, disruption of service provision, and general sense of panic and desperation associated with these events creates a sudden power vacuum. Governments are well aware of this, and they have developed contingency plans that allow them to rapidly move to reassert the rule of law over often still traumatized populations. According to the cold logic of state power, containing threats to public order brought on by a catastrophe is more important than actually saving lives. This includes squashing threats to the sanctity of private property brought on by the necessity of human survival. For anarchists and other enemies of social control, there is a flip side to this equation. 
While natural disasters are horrific tragedies that cause immense devastation and suffering, the collective trauma of these events can also serve to bring people together and inspire neighbors to build local networks of interdependence and mutual aid in order to collectively navigate situations where they've been abandoned by the state. This brings to mind the well-known quote by Spanish anarchist revolutionary Buenaventura Durruti, We are not afraid of ruins, we carry a new world here in our hearts. In the ruins created by climate catastrophe and natural disaster, new worlds are being built. Small-scale experiments in local sustainability and the fostering of new social relationships rooted in the values of autonomy and mutual aid. In Lakewood, what happened during the storm was almost criminal. They were told they were not in a, in a flood zone, they were not priority evacuation, and as the water started to rise from the bayou that encircles the neighborhood, they started calling for rescue and they couldn't get any. So they helped themselves, they found boats. Some neighbors went around rescuing folks off their roofs, and the community took care of itself. They have always been a tight-knit community, and now that they've gone through this together, they're even closer-knit. I think organizing around short-term and long-term relief for people has really helped to demonstrate how um, communities can do the work themselves and uh, render the state unnecessary. And that vision of community, mutual aid, horizontal organization, and solidarity is like coming to life with people. Grandes empresas juntando dinero que finalmente lo hacen porque ay mira soy esta empresa y te voy a apoyar para que puedas reconstruir tu casa porque yo que soy tan buena onda entonces creo que justo el apoyo mutuo no busca tener un reconocimiento. I think we have to be very careful about the politics of the groups that are saying they're doing aid in Puerto Rico. A lot of folks in the U.S., um, not necessarily the disaster relief folks, but other people from the Puerto Rican diaspora or other nonprofits, have come in to try to colonize the efforts, and they can have influence on other organizations, usually based on identity politics. So folks are, oh, these are the Puerto Ricans, so we got to listen to them. But not all Puerto Ricans are on the same page. La caridad puede usarse como moneda de cambio político para otros intereses que no nos interesa. Cuando tú recibes caridad, además de probablemente estar lavando la conciencia de alguien, se puede lucrar políticamente con eso. La ayuda mutua no persigue eso. The difference between charity and mutual aid in a disaster situation is charities like the Red Cross, they're set up along very specific lines. They have CEOs, they have vice presidents of communication, they have all of these different levels in their hierarchy, and as you go up, each level is more authoritarian than the one before it. So in order to make any decisions, in order to do anything, things have to follow a very specific set of rules, they have to be done in a certain way, and if you try to contravene those rules, then you get booted out of the organization. From Katrina to Haiti to Houston, they cause the same problems over and over again because their structures are inflexible. We get to pick and choose what we want to do. And in picking and choosing what we want to do, we let the community who needs the work done direct us. Mutual aid just recognizes that we're all in different places and we have to meet each other where we are in order to keep moving forward. All of this hand wrangling, all of this will our funders renew that grant at the end of the year is not an issue. We've been creating affinity groups like medical crews, organizing short-term infrastructure like solar and water purification, and then we have a long-term systems group that's coming in after. We've been in contact with folks from Houston and, and Louisiana and Mexico who've been you know, organizing that same um, structure. It's open source, open communication. It's uh, really accessible so community um, can get involved where they have like the most intel on what's going on. 
when you have an opportunity to rebuild systems so that they're more people-centered than organizationally centered, then you're doing real work. Then you're making a difference that's a long-term difference because you're letting people direct what it is that they need rather than coming in and dictating to them and telling them what you will give them. When disaster happens, it's a crack in like societal norms that the state has set up for us and we can see each other through the cracks and exploit those cracks. This is the time where we can seize power and we can act and really empower other people to, you know, to make our communities ours. Liberalism is dying for a reason. Watching Anderson Cooper and saying, oh my, is not activism. If you believe that change comes from other means, you need to be actually doing those things. Just go out and fucking do it. Get self-organized, get um, affinity groups together and start responding, but respond through listening. We already have to have plans in place when this happens because the response has been too slow. For comrades that are organizing in other spaces, I would say get out into the community, get them involved in what's going on, start organizing projects around people's experiences and, and then uh, building from there. Go find the people. They're there. You see them every day. Um, they're the single mom who needs a childcare co-op or helps setting one up. I think that what you're seeing is anarchists leading and saying, here are options. Rather than waiting on the government to enact those options, we're going to create open source uh, resources and allow the communities to have access to them so that people are empowered. It's the future, it's where we're going, and I am proud to be a part of the anarchists who are leading the way on it. Looking for trouble? In the days after we finished interviewing members of Mutual Aid Disaster Relief, the church they were operating out of in Guaynabo, Puerto Rico, was raided by a SWAT team. These comrades were detained at gunpoint, as if they were associated with Antifa, and interrogated as to whether or not they intended to overthrow the government. Thankfully, they were all released without charges and were able to quickly get back to work. This act of ill-thought-out repression clearly demonstrates that governments see relief efforts that fall outside the hierarchical control of the state and corporate nonprofits as a challenge to their legitimacy and a threat to their assumed role as the sole deciders of who gets aid, how they get it, and when. So at this point, we'd like to remind you that trouble is intended to be watched in groups and to be used as a resource to promote discussion and collective organizing. Are you interested in starting a local group to help support frontline disaster relief efforts? Or just figuring out how people in your town could better apply mutual aid principles to your local organizing? Consider getting together with some comrades, screening this film, and discussing what this could look like in practice. Interested in running regular screenings of trouble at your campus, info shop, community center, or even at home with friends? Become a troublemaker. For 10 bucks a month, we'll hook you up with an advanced copy of the show plus a screening kit featuring additional resources and some questions you can use to get a discussion going. If you can't afford to support us financially, no worries. You can stream and or download all our content for free off our website, sub.media slash trouble. If you've got any suggestions for show topics or just want to get in touch, drop us a line at trouble at sub.media. We would also like to remind you that Submedia is still fundraising to try and grow our collective so that we can increase our video output and bring back the stimulator for a new weekly news show. If you like what we do and want to see more of it, please consider going to sub.media slash donate and making a one-time donation. 
or better yet, becoming a monthly sustainer for as little as two bucks a month. As a token of our appreciation, we'll send you some swag in the mail. As always, we're excited to see that people have been supporting and screening our work and want to give a big shout out to the hundreds of new Sub.Media subscribers who signed up as monthly sustainers after we got kicked off PayPal. Also, we've been fundraising to send water filtration systems to Puerto Rico to get to folks in dire need of clean drinking water. To help us in this mission, go to sub.media slash Puerto Rico. This episode would not have been possible without the generous support of Natalie, Ita, Avispa Media, and Nicholas. Now, get out there and make some trouble. Salte de mi isla, socio, salte de mi puerto. Ustedes son los ricos, nosotros los hambrientos. Fuego va tu abuso y tu cabildeo. Desde Puerto Rico te regalamos un deo. Te limpiamos el hocico si te guillas de vaquero. Antes que llore mi vieja, la tuya llora primero. Los Federicos son ratones del imperio. Jodieron al Bisu y también a Filiberto.